Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this episode, Brian Gorman interviews Dr. Rachel M. K. Headley, CEO of Rose Group International, on the topic of IX leadership, create high five cultures, and guide transformation. In part one of this three part series, they will deep dive into organizational culture and different culture types. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to this podcast with Change Management Review. I am Brian Gorman, the Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and my guest today is Dr. Rachel M. K. Headley. Rachel is a satellite scientist who loves to diagnose really thorny root cause issues and create action-based solutions. She works with Meg Mankey as a senior partner in RGI. Rachel's a big picture thinker who loves people and, and who can get seemingly impossible things done, which can sometimes surprise her Mensa brethren. She always wanted to be an astronaut and stage an end around into the space industry through her work as an operational science officer for the Landsat satellite mission. Today, she takes the lessons she's learned from working with big budgets and global missions to build high-achieving teams and develop IX leaders. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. So your bio tells us a little bit about you. Can you start by telling us what you mean by an IX leader? Yeah, well, we really are excited about taking the next step in leadership by helping leaders actually take on the mantle of developing their IX, which is internal experience. So there's so much uh, self-reflection in leadership today, and that's, we feel that's vitally important. But often we lose the, the, the opportunity to, to train leaders to actually look across our organization and say, I am responsible for the health and well-being of the culture and the experience of the people in this organization. And so that's the focus that we have. So I want to begin our conversation with a quote from the book, IX Leadership, Create High Five Cultures and Guide Transformation. In the book, you and and, um, Meg write, Business owners need to learn how to lead employees who can evangelize their culture and brand. These are your ambassadors. They may not always be the loudest people in the room, but being a leader means seeing something in someone that other people don't. Your ambassadors will be your biggest advocates because they subscribe to your vision. Therefore, they embrace your mission. How important is this perspective to the success of today's businesses? Well, one of the biggest challenges that we see that creates tension, dysfunction, lack of productivity, bottom line issues is a misalignment between leadership, either leadership teams as a whole or leadership and the folks actually on the ground on the day day in, day out tasks, getting things done. And so there's a lot of the disconnect between internal teams is really a challenge. And so that alignment of where are we going 
But not only that, it kind of takes one step further than, than that quote when we work with teams. And that's when we try to start looking at behavior and how to, what are the behaviors that we're, that we need to actually achieve the vision and that mission. And so starts with people feeling like they're a part of that vision and mission, but then we also help develop those behaviors also that are critical to achieving the goals, to working together as a team, to having each other's backs as an organization. So what brought you and Meg to this focus on culture and behavior? Life, um, <laughs> life experience. Ah. Um, we actually, so interesting, Meg is, um, has an HR background and she came up through um, construction, mining, logistics, trucking, like real blue collar work. Um, great. It, we both are from farm and ranch families. So, you know, those are kind of our roots. Uh, love working with those organizations. Um, and then I came up through uh, science and engineering in the aerospace side of the house. And what we both discovered was that in these two very different arenas, we saw the same challenges with people, whether it was, um, whether it's this misalignment that I spoke of, or whether it's people not feeling valued, or uh, whether the change that we see um, really disrupts their people's comfort and that makes them anxious and that creates lack of productivity and a disengagement, active disengagement. So we saw the same patterns of behavior that we felt were challenging for business today across this huge spectrum from, you know, basically below ground to outer space. And so we figured if we could put our heads together and use both of our skills. So I was in leadership, a leadership role as a leads as a scientist on the operational side of the house of the, the aerospace stuff, I saw the same challenges and I couldn't do their job because I was a scientist, they're engineers. And so I really had to figure out how I could support them without telling them how to do their job. And so that was part of my journey and then connecting with Meg and figuring out how do we help people uh, feel that connection and that alignment if we, if we could solve that challenge um, for both of our industries, then there was very few industries that it wouldn't work for. And that, so that was kind of how we got started. So as a change management professional, um, one of the things that we learned very early on is culture is the organization's change immune system. <laughs> To change the culture, you have to change how people are showing up, how they think, what they do, how they do it, even the priorities that they give things from one day to the next. It's incredibly complex. Yes. And yet you and Meg have come up what I would describe as an elegant model for understanding and changing culture. We're going to be addressing the application of your model in a, a future podcast, but for now, would you walk us through an introduction to the culture types? What I'd like to do is just take a few minutes to look at each type in more detail. Um, and we'll begin with two of the four, stabilizers and organizers. They're both what you refer to in the book as order tolerant. Stabilizers are team-driven, 
organizers function more independently. Starting with stabilizers, can you tell us a little bit more about who they are, what drives them, what they're afraid of, um, the role they play on the team, uh, on a team, and um, when you've got a stabilizer as a leader, what that looks like. Yeah, stabilizers are our largest uh, type to start with. They, they're, as you mentioned, they are very team driven and uh, order tolerant is the way we describe them. The important thing about stabilizers is that they are a reflection, the name, the stabilizer is a reflection of their behavior at work. They are a stabilizing force at work. So um, if there's a lot of chaos going on, they're the ones that will stay the course, they're going to hang, they're going to come to work and do the, the job every day. They're going to be, they tend to be uh, some of the hot, the world's experts in things. So if you think about a Nobel prize winner, for example, let's say in physics, that person has to come to work every day and be committed to a very special, specific uh, type of physics, for example, let's say neutrinos. And they have to study those neutrinos every day for their whole life to achieve the level of expertise that you would require to win a critical sort of award like that. So they range are so fascinating because they range from welders to, you know, Nobel prize winners. And that's true in all of the culture types that we're going to talk about is there are uh, no winners and losers as far as which type is quote unquote better or worse. Um, they are, there are rock stars and there are poor performers in, in all, but the, the stabilizer's true um, power and um, they're really great at staying the course, taking care of business, getting things done. A lot of times they're the ones in our companies that actually are making, moving the ball down the field from a um, execution perspective. And they're the ones that keep the folks that want to go squirrel from their perspective. They want to, the people that are all squirrely and are chasing the shiny objects. They're the ones that are always wanting to bring people back to let's stay focused on this thing that we're supposed to do. Now the, the challenge with stabilizers in a very uh, change heavy environment is that they really change feels chaotic to them. So as order tolerant people, they, um, they can do anything from feeling slight discomfort around change to heavily resisting, to actively resisting change. Um, they, uh, they need different things from all the other types. They need to understand how socially, they're very team-driven, so they want to understand socially what, how the change impacts their social networks, their team. Um, even simple things like, let's say, a leadership change in a team can really throw stabilizer for a loop because they thrive off things staying orderly. And so if they're not sure who this new person is, or let's say they have a leadership change and that might imply other people's jobs changing or perhaps other people being fired or being laid off, that creates a huge amount of stress for stabilizers. And that essentially creates, um, you know, those, those are the folks that feel like they're the naysayers, the roadblockers to change. But really what they need is a couple things. They, they, um, they really like 
uh, more detail than a lot of times um, leadership are willing to give them. So they want to know who's going to be affected and what's the timeline and, and, and what are some of those change into the immune system that we have to do. And they feel that they're very, they feel that they're going to have to change how things get done. And that, that worries them a lot. Uh, stabilizers as leaders are beloved by their people um, tend to be because those stabilizers are so in tune with their, the social networks of their people that they protect them um, quite vigorously. So if there's an outside influence that's coming in that wants to change or disrupt, they will um, push back very hard to protect their people. So they're a bit of an eye of the storm uh, kind of leader where they'd like to keep all the chaos away from their people and protect the people below them. And so that's the kind of leadership uh, they style they tend to take on. Thank you. Organizers. Organizers are very order tolerant also. Um, but the fascinating thing about organizers is, and we call them organizers not because they're organized. A lot of organizers immediately object to, their, to this uh, naming because they are not organized, uh, but or they don't feel organized. But I guarantee you that an organizer's organized is far more organized than mine, and we'll get to my type on. Um, I was talking to a deep organizer. My, I always call her my favorite organizer just because I know her well, and she's the, one of the, the deepest organizers we've ever assessed. And she said that she was on the struggle bus, um, meaning that she was having a hard day. And I said, I'm sure that your hardest day is me organized times 10. Um, but organizers, like, don't, they, can, they seem to be able to handle chaos pretty well but they like to organize the chaos. So they like to create order from the chaos. So a lot of these folks will um, go into a meeting where something new is being rolled out and immediately they start sketching out all of the components of what's going to change, who's going to change. Um, they're going to ask questions like, why wasn't this, why wasn't it working before and why is it working now? They see, the, and, and they, because they're more individual performers and more self-driven, they tend to be seen as more logic driven because they're not as concerned about how it's going to affect everybody. They're more concerned about what's the process change going to be. What are the, what's the goal change going to be? They're much, they feel much more logic driven because they are just not as worried about the human component of change, other people's human component of change. So they're, they're much more interested in data from a, how is this going to affect me and the things I need to do perspective? And frankly, um, they, I thought when we first started doing assessing, we would only find one or two or three of these organizers in even very large teams. And I thought, oh my gosh, is there something wrong with the assessment or why aren't we finding them? They're one of the smallest, if not the smallest group. Uh, well, I guess one of the smallest groups, they're number three. Um, but come to find out, we found a bunch of them when we started working in the financial services industry. Um, the, we're working with the big audit team, and we had almost everybody in audit was an organizer, except for the partners, which were more chaotic. But so the organ, so it makes so much sense, right? Because here you have auditors are going into companies or taking the chaos that is the, the company's accounting, and then they make the create 
their audits from all of this disparate information. So um, that tends to be more what stabilize or what organizers um, like to do. And so the organizer leadership, uh, we tend to see organizer leaders in areas like uh, legal, chief legal officers, chief finance officers, not always, but those are the folks that tend to be able, because they're more self-driven, they're typically not in uh, leadership over groups of people because they're just, those are the, they're just not that tuned into people and they usually get criticized um, for not being, not having the coaching skills or mentoring well, um, because they're just, they don't need, as an organizer, they don't need that sort of interaction. They don't feel like they need coaching. They don't feel like they need uh, people to do their job. They're going to make the right decision because they've thought through all the options. They're going to go make the decision. Um, and so they don't, they're not as tied into that human connection that to some of us are. And so they're often seen as not being very approachable or being more um, sort of mm, contentious almost because they'll, they're more likely to bring up issues that other people won't bring up because they're afraid of hurt feelings. And so when you're self-driven, it doesn't mean that you don't like people. I don't mean to say that because some of our organizers are very charismatic, very people oriented, but they are not afraid to make decisions or bring up issues because it might hurt people's feelings. They're just not that, that tied into to the people's feelings that much, other people's feelings. And so they do, so when they have their, they can be very successful leaders, but they're often, um, their one downfall is probably that lack of mentoring or coaching that some people feel. Thank you. Those are stabilizers and organizers. They are order tolerant. Then you've got fixers and independents are the other two, um, types that you identify and they're more chaos tolerant let's start with fixers fixers well i'm a fixer uh so uh fixers tend to be chaos tolerant and we're team driven so we're like stabilizers in that we are connected into people and but the difference is is that we like chaos we like and i don't mean chaos like drama so we're not interested in drama at all we're interested in chaos as in new ideas, connecting um, information from three different sources that no one else might even think to connect and try and come up with a new solution. Um, something different walks in our door every morning. We're not sure what it's going to be. Um, new challenges and problem solving. We love all that stuff. Um, what that means is because we're chaotic and we, and we love living in that sort of soup of new ideas and whiteboarding and hand-waving, it does mean that we tend to struggle more with the productivity side of getting things done. So the, the people um, might see, other people might see fixers as um, always chasing a new idea, sort of that squirrel problem. Like I have the fourth greatest new idea today. And then, um, but you're like, well, wait, we were supposed to be doing this other thing. So, but fixers have this really, it's the funny thing about fixers is that, if they are in an environment that feels too predictable, stable, um, no, no growth or no ex what they would consider excitement, they will, they can and will create their own. And so uh, we often say that that fixers can fix problems that nobody else has. 
just to have something to fix. So that's one uh, challenge. We, in fact, as an example, as an anecdote, we were working with a firm with an IT administrator who is a fixer. And I was really surprised because IT tends to be much more um, order tolerant because, of course, you have to be able to be very detail-oriented analytic. And uh, what he had done is he created an entire new system for the whole company to use because it would solve all these problems. But he hadn't actually asked anybody if they wanted it. Um, he just saw the need and he fixed it. Well, now, of course, he's having a hard time rolling it out because nobody knows what's coming and he hasn't any buy-in. So fixer leaders uh, have a hard time staying out of it, um, out of problems. We, we want to jump in and, and fix problems. We would love to be the hero. It's why I love what I do. I can go into a, a team who's really struggling with dysfunction or alignment, and I can work with them for six hours. And at the end of the day, everyone is feeling good and has hope that there's a way forward. And that is uh, just like a drug to me. I just love helping people um, solve those kind of problems. And so that's what fixers really are. We like to, to take those crazy connections and, and assess, and we're really tight in with people. So we, we are, we can kind of assess the, the people in the room a little better um, than the self-driven types. We, we feel their pain more, um, more personally and viscerally. And so we want to solve that pain. Um, I saw a woman just yesterday turn down um, the wrong, like there's a big off ramp off the interstate and she actually tried to turn down the off ramp because there's like a service road really close by. And I physically felt her pain or her, I, I felt anxious for her immediately and wanted to help her. I was in no position. I was way across the intersection, could do nothing. But I, I felt that very personally, very deeply. Um, and so, I mean, nothing bad happened. She was okay. It was, there's lots of people parked there. So she realized right away what had happened. But um, so that's the, that's sort of a fixer, both blessing and curse is that you want to fix things. Fixers can also, what we call fixer burnout, where you're in an environment where you can't, you need to fix things, but you're not empowered to fix, or there's cultural challenges that resist being fixed or, or you're not uh, in the, uh, to have the authority to fix. And, and so fixers can get burnt out um, by, because they can't fix problems. So, so that's sort of what a, where, a, where fixers fall. Thank you. The last of the four are independents. Yeah, independents are our self-driven, chaos-tolerant group. Um, independents love change for change's sake. So fixers like change to, to make the world a better place Independence like change just because they wanted something different. They're kind of the true disruptors, right? There are a lot of the entrepreneurs you'll see. There are a lot of people that are working on their own or decide to leave corporate to, to do something different. Um, they're the folks that are off living in vans and running around. They are very, and, and again, they're not, it's not like don't like people. Um, my boyfriend is a independent he runs his own company. He's an off-grid builder. So he does all of this weird stuff like um, all solar, um, straw bale houses, um, con shipping container houses. And, but he, and so he's, he loves being different than everybody else. He loves running his own company, but he loves people. He is, uh, we have, we, we have names for it. Like 
um, if we go out to any place public and all of a sudden Cappy will run off to use the restroom and then he doesn't come back for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, we, we know he's been cappied. His name is, his last name is Jared Cap. Um, we say he's been cappied because he knows everybody and he can literally know every single table from where you're sitting to the restroom and back. And so he, he's very charismatic and loves people. But at the same time, when it comes to his business and work, he's in charge. He makes the decisions. He listens to his people. But at the end of the day, if he has to make a decision that's unpopular, he's going to make the decision that he feels is right. And it doesn't really matter what everyone else thinks. So he's very independent that way. So that tends to be the independent. Some independents are very, uh, can be more callous or more or less connected to people. I worked with one independent. Um, who always ha- seemed to have trouble with staff. And, and he said, uh, he said, well, what do you do? I had this battle axe personality type, you know, sort of the, um, we live in the Midwest, you know, so they're like the sturdy women that have a lot of opinions about things. And, and he said, uh, I can, I can never seem to work with those, those women. And I said, well, have you ever went up to, Susan, well, I don't know her real name, but if you went up to Susan and said, Hey, Susan, today's going to be a really busy day. Is there anything I can do to help you? And he looked at me and he said, now, why would I ever do that? She knows her job. She can do her job. Why would I offer to help her? And it was like such an amazing moment because he really does not see and is not connected to the value of, of connecting with people. He thinks that People know their job. They should just go do their job. Why can't people do their job? And so his big challenge and the coaching I was doing with him was even the things like your VP of, you know, this is a, he's a VP of ops. And I said, you need to go talk to your general manager at least once a week for a half hour, just about how she's doing, what's going on in her team. And he said, that is such a waste of time. And so he does it. He really does not connect with people in the same way that other, that more socially driven people are. So um, the great thing about independence is they love chaos. They're going to push you all the time. They're going to create new opportunities for their organizations. They're always looking for that next opportunity and that next way of doing something different. But the, the challenge with, with independence is they aren't as connected into the people as, as some of us are. So I love the model, Rachel. How do you actually work with it with your clients? When we have a client team, we go in and we we have everyone take the assessment. And what we do is we actually, instead of just saying, Brian, you're a fixer and Rachel, you're a fixer and Bob, you're a stabilizer. What we do is we actually scatter plot you. So it's a, it's a quantitative assessment in that sense where we actually scatter plot you across the same uh, graph. So when we talk about inner dynamics of the team and, and alignment and what, what are, where are the challenges are going to come between types, we can immediately diagnose issues just from that scatter plot alone. So one example is we are working with the leadership team and one gentleman, so they, we did the scatter plot and before we went in to do a corporate retreat. We did an executive retreat, like a one day uh, event. They had some issues with alignment. They weren't moving forward together as a team and they wanted to feel a little bit more um, aligned and a little bit more on the same page. And so they brought us in 
And so we were looking at the scatter plot and we said, you know, they have one organizer, Dave, we'll call him Dave. They had one organizer, Dave, and we could see that that would be a challenge with this team, most of which were fixers. And the challenge that comes out of that the interaction is that organizers are going to want much more detail. They want it to, things to be much more organized. They want things to be much more predictable. They want things um, to be uh, under, well understood and the path forward. And so fixers are going to be much more chaotic, much more team driven. You know, organizers want to know why we're doing it from a financial perspective, let's say a new, a new direction, or what's the value of going that way. And, you know, fixers want to just solve a problem for people. Maybe the numbers don't pencil out, but we don't really care. We just want to go do this thing. That's the right thing to do. And so right away you get this tension between an organizer will give me a 30 page report. um, Let's say a monthly report. And then the fixer is never going to read that report. Never going to read it. Promise. There's just way too much detail in that report. I'm going to maybe skim the executive summary if there's a table of contents, I'll read it. And so what'll happen is um, a fixer might go talk to an organizer and say, hey, organizer, um, I'm looking for an update on this one project. I know you did the monthly report. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about it? And immediately the organizer will say, but wait, I, that was in the 30 page report I did. Didn't, didn't you read my report? And so immediately from that one moment, you have the fixer um, is feeling like the organizer is accusing them of, of not doing their job and feeling like, and, all, and the fixer feels like this organizer hid that information on page 22 of this 30 page report. You have the organizer who feels like their work isn't valued and like this fixer isn't appreciating the things that they've done. And so just from this tiny interaction, they are started this little fissure in between them and that has zero to do with their passion for the company, their passion for their team, their passion for their work, their excitement to get things done. But how they see the world is totally different. So what we can do is when we saw this um, Dave, who was way on this other end of this graph, we thought this is going to be where our, one of our key root cause issues, where that communication breakdown happens. And um, right before we walked into the meeting, the CEO pulled us aside and and he said, you know, we might want some training on email communication and how to do that well. And I said, um, and we, I forget exactly how the conversation went, but essentially uh, I had talked to Meg who was facilitating and I had given her heads up about this Dave guy. And Meg said something like, well, let me guess, is Dave struggling with email communication? And the CEO looked at her like she was a magician because it's like, how did you know? It's like, well, because organizers are not that tied in to social, uh, to the social network. And so they're going to be more likely to send an email that might not resonate or that might, you know, it'll get to the point, but it's not full of niceties. And so um, we can start immediately telling where the challenges are going to be between people, uh, between in a team just based on their culture types and how extreme they are and and which type. So that's how we work. That's how we start working with teams. Rachel, this has been fascinating. Um, We're going to continue this in our next podcast. 
where we're going to talk about how you apply the model in transitions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and Dr. Rachel M.K. Headley. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.